Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how you doing out there? This is The Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it and I hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Today on the program, my guest is Charmaine Craig, author of a new novel called My Nemesis. Rivalry between women is one of those subjects that I think culturally we're more comfortable referring to it as, oh yeah, that mean girl phenomenon, or, you know, cat fight. The reality is, I think most women would agree from a very early age, I mean, just look at little girls and how easy it is for girls to feel hurt by one another and how easy it is for power dynamics to sort of happen even, again, at, on the, at the playground, third, fourth, fifth grade, it starts. Does she think I'm wearing the right thing? Am I too attractive? Does she feel threatened by me? Am I trying too hard? Am I, there's all these little dynamics that every woman I've talked to about this is like, oh, yeah. All right, that was Charmaine Craig, author of the new novel, My Nemesis. It's available now from Grove Press. My Nemesis is a philosophical novel about a woman named Tessa, a writer who is married, who develops a friendship with a man named Charlie, who is also married. Charlie is a philosopher and a scholar, and his relationship with Tessa becomes intense to the point of evolving into what could fairly be categorized as a kind of emotional affair. Charlie's wife, Wa, also ends up becoming both a friend and eventually an adversary to Tessa. Wa is a woman whose more traditional bearing and relationship with her husband, as well as her more nurturing approach to motherhood all of this becomes kind of an offense in Tessa's eyes, a collective offense, as it pertains to Tessa's view of womanhood and feminism. And there is, at the heart of this book, a rupture in the relationship between these two women. My Nemesis is a very taut, very propulsive novel about seduction and envy and female friendship 
It is a book that is asking very deep and very difficult questions about how intimate relationships work, what it means to be a woman and a mother in the modern world, and the tension that can often arise between a morality-guided approach to life and an approach to life that is rooted in love. My conversation with Charmaine Craig is coming up momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company, publisher of the novel Margot by Wendell Stevenson. Margot is a coming-of-age novel about a young woman named Margot Thornson who is growing up between a Park Avenue apartment in Manhattan and a lavish estate out on Long Island. She is a girl born into privilege who is stuck in the moors and bores of wasp society in the mid-20th century. She has a really domineering mother who has very fixed ideas about what Margot should do with her life. As she grows up and comes of age in the 1960s, Margot's path diverges from the path of previous generations. She goes off to college at Radcliffe and she navigates a new age of sexual liberation, scientific discovery, acid trips, rock and roll, all the stuff of the 1960s. And, you know, the old rule book is thrown out the window. There are no more limits. And women have a new world of possibilities to consider. But what does Margot really want? That's Margot, the new novel by Wendell Stevenson, which I just read a couple of weeks ago. And I had a wonderful talk with Wendell Stevenson on this program. Be sure to listen to her episode. Margot is an engrossing work of fiction about the life of a young woman who has great potential and who is navigating a moment of great social change. I loved reading this book. Go get your copy. Once again, it is called Margot by Wendell Stevenson, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire catalog of conversations that I've had over the past 11 years All of it is made available to listeners free of charge. There are no paywalls by design. I want this content to be accessible. I want you guys to be able to listen and enjoy the program. But in order for me to keep things going, I need your support. If you are a listener on a regular basis, if you get something from this program, if you really love it, or if you just love books and literary culture and you want to help perpetuate it, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support this program for as little as $1 a month. And as you move up the scale, you can get merchandise. That's the way it's set up over at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. Support this podcast and help me keep making this podcast. You can also get merchandise. If you want to get t-shirts or sweatshirts or even baby clothes, branded other people onesies. (laughs) Please go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you scroll down, you'll see another people t-shirt. Click on that and you'll go to the merch page and you can buy some merchandise. That's a great way to support the show. You can also join the book club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on book club in the menu bar. I interview all book club authors on this program. If you would like to get my email newsletter, it goes out once a month or once a week. Uh, It is free. You can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. The newsletter is a reminder of the latest episodes of the podcast. It is also an enumerated list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting 
or amusing or both. So it's just once a week. It's free. Sign up for the newsletter if you would like to hear from me in your inbox. If you would be so kind, I would appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. This is an easy way to help. It's a great way to help the show find new listeners. Just rate the show if you listen at Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is. And if the possibility exists to write a review, write a quick review. This helps the show in the algorithm. If you are a video person and you would like to watch full video of my conversations, you can do that now over at the Other People YouTube channel. Just search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy over at YouTube. And when you get to the Other People YouTube channel, hit the subscribe button. It's free. You can also watch video clips or highlights of these conversations on the Other People Instagram page or on TikTok. The Other People podcast now has a TikTok presence. And you can follow the show on Twitter. The handle there is at Other PPL. I post the highlights on Twitter too. If you would like to email me, if you have thoughts, feedback, if you want to tell me a story, the email address for this podcast is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Last but not least, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Got to give it a plug. It is available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything is a work of autofiction, and it involves, at a certain point, me taking a huge amount of mushrooms and blindfolding myself. Anyway, the book is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. If you would like to read it, it is available. So my guest again is Charmaine Craig. Her new novel is called My Nemesis. It is available from Grove Press. It publishes this very week. This is Charmaine Craig's second time on the Other People podcast. We spoke a few years ago when she was out touring with her novel, Miss Burma, which was longlisted for the National Book Award and the Women's Prize for Fiction. She also has a novel out called The Good Men, and she teaches in the fiction program at the University of California, Riverside. I had a great time, such an interesting time, talking with Charmaine Craig whose new novel really stayed with me and continues to stay with me long after reading it. It's one of those books. And I'm just really pleased to get a chance to share this talk with all of you guys right now. So here she is, folks. This is my conversation with Charmaine Craig, and her new novel, One More Time, is called My Nemesis. The book is narrated by a woman named Tessa. She is a very successful writer, a memoirist, a feminist. She feels really certain that she knows what it means to be a strong woman, a woman who is really committed to bringing herself forth in her work. And when we meet her, she has been engaged in a long distance correspondence with a philosopher named Charlie. He's based in Los Angeles. She's based on the East Coast. They each live with their respective spouses. And soon Charlie comes and stays with Tessa and her husband where they live in upstate New York on a farm. And Tessa's husband, Milton, excuses himself. And I'm telling you this because basically Tessa and Charlie, the philosopher, begin to talk. And there are a series of conversations between them in the book where they they talk about some of the, I think, the touchy subjects that we're thinking about today. What do we mean by 
masculinity and femininity? What about this issue of privilege? What about cultural appropriation? But the conversations between them aren't just intellectual. They're also, I think, really charged, even like sultry. And Tessa finds herself um, feeling very, very drawn to Charlie. And in spite of the fact that she really considers herself somebody who's a massive champion for women and an advocate for women in her work, when she meets Charlie's wife, Wa, she cannot help but feel really triggered, you might say, envious of her, judgmental of her, all of her, the sort of thing we don't really talk about much, and I think in our culture, which is the subject of rivalry between women, all of that is sort of activated in her. And so, again, in spite of her politics, in spite of her desire to be a champion to women, she can't help but proceed to tear Wad down in her head and sometimes out loud. So Tessa is a person who is, I think, really good at articulating herself and actually perhaps admirably in some ways self-aware and actually privately pretty good at admitting her flaws to herself and by extension us. But on the other hand, her certitude about everything, even about herself, her and, and, and such things as what it means to be a good person, a strong woman, etc. Her certitude, in a way, forbids her, I think, from allowing herself to imagine her way into radically other perspectives or radically other ideas about those very things that she's so certain about. That's well said. I think that maybe this is why in reading this book and in reading Tessa's narration, I found myself like, there's just like an, it's like a hard to define uneasiness. And I would compare it to the effect that uh, I feel when I read Camus' The Stranger, which factors in, I think, at least somewhat to this book. Camus certainly does. And maybe it's that, maybe it's that really cool intelligence and that self-awareness and yet there, there's something cold about it. <laughs> there's something mm-hmm. cold about the intelligence, you know, and maybe it's that inability to imagine the perspective of others fully because of the certitude that Tessa feels about her own viewpoint. Yeah, well, Camus, I mean, one of the reasons I was drawn to including Camus, in addition to the fact that I have long loved his fiction, but also his... Um, his writing, his philosophical writings and his journal writings, is that I'm really, I've been really kind of moved by his ideas about love on the one hand and justice and morality on the other. And at the end of the day, Camus came down on the side of love. And what I mean is that, you know, you might know that around the time that he won the Nobel, he was really can't basically canceled by his some of his closest friends Simone de Beauvoir Sartre because he was considered a political moderate he wasn't for him lives and and people being alive was more important than a commitment to communism or to his to social ideals so he he really especially toward the end of his you know 
as he developed as a thinker, was really taken increasingly by, even at the end of his life, he, he wrote in his journals, no more morality, no more morality. Because I think he worried about the cost of a sort of inflexible morality and justice, uh, the human cost, the heart cost. Yeah. So do you read a lot of philosophy or is it just Camus? Like, are you somebody who, it feels like you, you're really interested in this, at least for the purposes of writing this novel and these characters. You know, I think from pretty early on, I've been interested in philosophy for most of my, my intellectual life and starting in college, but I'm not a philosopher. I have the benefit of being married to someone who's quite engaged in philosophy, which I'm sure, so that means it's ever present in the household. But for this, I think what prompted me also in part to want to bring some philosophers into the book almost as characters, those two philosophers being Camus and Nietzsche, was that I was thinking a lot about, as I was thinking about the book and, and the, the book's themes, I was thinking about this question that you know we ask ourselves sometimes, especially lately, what is the value of a work and should we keep reading a work of literature, philosophy, you know, you know what I mean? If the person who's written it has done things that we now deem kind of unforgivable. So in the case of Camus, he was a pretty notorious womanizer, really hurt his family because of this. I also have the character of Nietzsche and the work of Nietzsche lightly in the book as well. And, and Nietzsche is often, you know, thought of as sexist or even misogynist. And I think it's easy to argue he was sort of sexist. And so could I have these two men in the book that's a book ab about, to some extent, women and, and what it means to be a strong woman, and at the same time, draw out some value, the value of their work to me as a writer? So, I mean, again, there's this there's this little vignette in the book where it's uh, Nietzsche in real life. Nietzsche went to a friend's home, and this friend it was a, a couple. The woman broke down and cried about having lost her faith in Christianity, and Nietzsche begged her not to renounce her faith because for him, on the one hand, there's the truth of something, and on the other, there's the value of it. So even if we might encounter a hard truth about something, let's say someone in a marriage, does that mean throwing away the whole value of the marriage or a political figure? We find out a truth about a political figure who may be doing valuable things. Do we just throw out the baby with the bathwater? So again, Nietzsche's thinking about truth on the one hand and value on the other and his unwillingness to his sort of belief that even though he was writing philosophy in pursuit of truth, truth wasn't the more important to him than value or values. I feel like we live in a time where people, or a lot of people do tend to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It seems like this really binary, like a time of binary thinking, right? I'm sure you felt this. Is this kind of something that you were responding to in the writing of completely, this book? Completely, completely. You know, I, I was taking notes for the book. I started taking notes. So my last book came out in 2017. And right around that time, I entered. So first of all, you know what was going on then in our world. <laughs> Me too being one of the things that was really, really 
happening. And it so happened that for me personally at that time, it was a, a time of, of upheaval in my life. I had a very, we bought our house in 2017. Six months later, the house next door burned down and caught our house on fire. And we spent um, the next two years displaced, moving around LA, trying to just rebuild this house. Also, our marriage was we've been together for 26 years and it was the hardest two years of our, our marriage. And even um, for a period of time, we weren't living together. And so I was really thinking about the value of the nest, literally rebuilding our nest, restoring it, making it safe, making it aesthetic. But at the same time being like, whoa, what is the the value of that nest now? Thinking about men and women, mothering and fathering, you know, gender roles, all against this backdrop of me too. And at the same time, I went to like six different therapists to try to find one that I liked. And every single one of them told me a version of the same thing, which was when I kind of described what was going on. Basically, what I heard again and again was you're being, it's time for you to focus on you. It's all about you. Don't be a martyr. Don't be that sort of stereotype of the feminine martyr who is holding up the world as everything falls apart um, and neglecting yourself. And I, I sort of entered a phase of, I think, like a battle in myself between, and, and again, Me Too was going on, and that was sort of the, the background noise. But the battle being like, again, sort of truth versus value. Well, it may be true that I was in a phase of holding up the world of my own little nest did that mean that I should sort of burn down the marriage along with, and the family unit along with uh, my house, um, just because maybe things weren't fair in the moment? Was there not another kind of strength that I, that was a sort of a, I think a noble strength in being able to do that? What if I got past my kind of correct ideas of how to be a strong woman and how to assert myself and instead valued I think some more stereotypically feminine things that we tend to almost in a weirdly displaced misogynistic way belittle, like a woman's capacity to nurture, to be devoted during times of difficulty or other times. Why why was all that being denigrated? Why, Why was that being belittled for me personally? Can I interrupt you? Because I have a question about this. I think obviously there's the male female uh, binary and the ways in which men for whom strength and, uh, you know, whatever gets projected onto men, you know, these are the things that we're supposed to embody. I could see how men might belittle a woman's ability to nurture and maybe characterize that as weakness somehow. Is it also the case that you feel like there were negative messages about that sort of thing coming from women too? Or was it I would say yes. I I, I think that, so that what I just said about these therapists, they were all six women and they were all really genuinely, I think, trying to help me. But the basic message was, I mean, one even said to me, you're not going to like this, but I think you're submissive. And maybe she's right. But I also, it reminded me of the ways in my life I had been told, you need to be more assertive. You need to be, you need to prioritize your profession as much as you do your family. Otherwise, you're sort of a bad feminist or you're you're not advocating for yourself sufficiently. And 
so, you know, there's this, that the book starts with one woman accusing another woman, Tessa accusing Wa, the other character of being an insult to women. And, and, and that allegation came, really came out of, for me, a lifetime of, of being conflicted about all of this, you know, and being torn myself about my kind of divided commitments and, and separate ideas of what I want and, of, and what I think I'm good at as a woman. Let's have you read from the novel so that listeners can get a sense of the voice on the page and can get a sense of this central conflict in the book between Tessa and Wah, these two women who have intersecting lives that are described in the novel. Okay. When I accused Wah of being an insult to women, an insult to womankind was my unfortunate phrase. We were sitting with our husbands at a fashionable rooftop restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. It was late. I'd made the mistake of starting in on a third martini. And straight away I could feel the husbands begin to cower, whereas Wa confronted me with a look of hurt, almost to tell me that I betrayed some sort of feminine understanding. You've misunderstood me, Tessa, she said, and I noticed that she was panting as though I'd shaken her physically. She cast around for help from her husband, Charlie, whose steady gray eyes were moving between us. I think not, I said, before he could save her. But of course, she had a point. I'd never been able to read Wa, and I still don't believe that it was a matter merely of culture or ethnicity. True, as our current ethos would have it, she was a person of mixed race, something that might have contributed, beyond her unusual look, to the confusion of her submissive and queen-like demeanor. Though I don't think even her relatives could have told you if her general mode of quietness was due to a timidity on her part or a righteousness that kept her at a remove from others. I don't think anyone knew if she tended to smile courteously during conversations with that supple mouth of hers because she was incapable of keeping pace with our ideas or privately counting the ways those ideas were imbecilic. What I'm trying to get at is that I found her to be a tangle of both deference and hostility, if also some beauty, which is why, before the restaurant incident and my unfortunately phrased accusation, I was sympathetic when Charlie suggested he wanted to leave her. Okay, so based on what you were saying before the, you read that passage about being female, the messages that are often sent out to women about what that means or what that is supposed to mean. Is it a fair assessment to say that in creating Tessa and Wah and the relationship depicted in this novel that you were using them as kind of polarities or a way to explore this stuff from different perspectives? I mean, that's what's happening here. It's kind of giving you a chance to pit these conflicting ideas against one another. So I intentionally wrote in Tessa's perspective, because I think superficially, she is more different from me than Wa. 
meaning was mixed race Asian. She lives in Los Angeles. She lives in a neighborhood more like mine. It would be pretty easy for readers, you know, doing a quick internet search to say, oh, well, the author's more like was. So I was interested in part of the theme of the book. One of the themes in the book is, is, is this idea of perspectivism. And we can get to that in a minute. But I wanted to imagine my way into a perspective of a woman whose idea of how to be how to be in family, how to be with children, how to be with a spouse, and how to be a professional, a, a, a professional writer was a bit different from mine. I think that because we never get access for the most part to Wa's interior life, it's easy to read them for a very long time in the book as polar opposites, as having a very different ideas about those things I just mentioned. That begins to break down, I think, as Tessa reckons with all of this. And as we learn, we kind of gain access to some of Wa's inner thoughts. You know, one of the things that struck me about the book and about Tessa's perspective in particular, because it's it's right there, you know, her, like you say, her inner life is depicted on the page, has to do with motherhood, parenthood. I think reading this as a father and reading about the ways in which she has this kind of distant relationship with her daughter, Nora, or at least more distance than I think I have with my kids. I think maybe like she's a cat and I'm a dog <laughs> would be like one way of putting it. Cause she's got this coolness and I'm just like, Hey, you know, and like, I, mm-hmm. so I found myself just going, Oh my God, is this like, this is a way of doing it. Like you could be a parent like this and not be so like over the moon about your kids or like, constantly wanting to be with them or you know what I'm saying like it it just it made me think about my own life and other parents that I know and how like maybe to a degree that I haven't recognized there are people who aren't like into it in the way that I am or who who do it differently and it unnerved me a little bit if I'm being honest to have to think about it that way you know how she like, what was that? There's a, she's at that seminar or like, that's a, she's giving a speech and talking about like the possibility of losing a child, like the death of a child. And she gives this answer that would just chill me, yeah. <laughs> you know, where she's not, I mean, that's like every parent's worst nightmare, right? That's what we always are, are kind of taught to think of it. And it's pretty natural, but maybe not for her. Well, I think that this is a case where what you're referring to in this, in this, I guess, colloquium or, or, or panel discussion on motherhood and justice at Columbia University that her daughter, Nora, has put together. And she makes this statement that you're referring to. It's, in this particular case, it's an instance, I think, of Tessa valuing justice and correctness and morality over love. I think the reality is deep down inside Tessa is passionate, loves her daughter so much, but she is so wedded to, she has such strong allegiance to her sense of what's right. And it gets in the way of her heart. And so, yeah, if that makes sense. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But it's a credit to you and the way that you, like how sharply you drew these characters that mm, it had this effect on me. And then I think also there's the, the, the philosophical subtext or what do you call it? You know, there's like this, it's part of the undergirding of the story is this philo- philosophical conversation between Tessa and Charlie and these debates between love and morality or, you know, I get there might be other ways or other binaries at play here, but I found myself like working to keep up and it made me think, it made me see the world differently. You know what I'm saying? It forced me into confrontation with like these ideas Mm -hmm. and I appreciated that about it, but it also, you know, at times just made me think like, oh God, maybe it just destabilized me. You know, I think maybe we get, we get into our little train of thought and our little fixed way of going through the world. And every once in a while you'll read something and it will knock you off your, your course a little bit. And that's good. Uh, But I did, I have to say, I did worry. I worried about Nora, (laughs) Uh, you know, a little bit. I found myself worried about her. Nora being Tessa's daughter, who is has in some ways or in many ways been neglected. <laughs> um, yeah. But also not like overindulged in the way that so many kids yeah. are, you know, she's been kind of treated as a human being, or I don't know, maybe that's not the way to put it, but treated as maybe an adult, probably too, a little bit too early you mm-hmm. know, in her life. But there's a certain toughness that maybe she might have that kids who are over-nurtured might not have. Right, right. You know, one of the things that happened in my personal life when I was also putting together these ideas was I had a little magazine assignment to write a piece that took place in Lisbon. And it was the kind of assignment where they didn't tell me where I was going until 24 hours before. And um, so I had no plans. Suddenly I was like on a plane to Lisbon. And I had a series of unexpected, completely unplanned meetings with people there. You know, I, I, I suddenly when I was on the ground, I reached out to someone who might know someone who put me in touch with this person. I, and suddenly I was meeting, it just so happened, about five different men who were writers and or scholars to, to because I decided what I was going to write about. And they all had something to do with that. And literally almost in every case, the man would say something like, yeah, my children mean so much to me. And 
through the course of the conversation, I would find out that their children were living in another country and were young <laughs> still. And they had uh -huh. this conception of themselves as very engaged parents. But in fact, they hardly ever saw their children. And it really got under my skin. And I, I started thinking like, could, like, would a, I mean, is this some, I'm apparently not you, Brad, but I think that if I'm going to sort of speak in, in stereotypes and generalizations, I feel like this is a lot more natural for a man to think this way. Like I'm a very engaged parent, but like in reality, how much time am I really spending with my children? And it would actually be okay to even live in another country. I'd still conceive of myself as a loving, attentive and engaged parent. But what if like, are, do we accept that more from a man than we would from a woman? Did part of why it like, upset you and worry you so much is because Tess is a woman. Would it not have worried you so much if she were a man? I wonder. I think if I'm being honest, that the effect is probably sharper in some subconscious way because she was a woman mm -hmm. or she is a woman on the page. It wasn't something I was thinking about. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like I was like, oh, she's a woman. She's a mother. She's supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z. But I would cop to that. I think maybe the way that we've been enculturated or, mm -hmm. you know, that there's some of that. But I think if it were a man, I would have felt it too and would have been measuring my own tendencies. Now, I say that and I, as a parent, uh, see my kids a lot, mm -hmm. but I work a lot too mm -hmm. and sometimes feel like I'm not seeing them enough. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to sound like super dad or something. I'm just around a lot. I work from home a lot. So, you know, but I have to be focused on work a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And there are questions around that. I think most parents have to navigate Absolutely. that. That seems fair, fairly normal, but I, I don't know. I just, uh, I guess to answer your, your question is, yeah, I think probably there's some of that, some of that has to do with gender, mm -hmm. but I still also reacted in just a general way as a parent and had to think about like, maybe I'm too indulgent or maybe I'm too soft. <laughs> like there's a toughness to Tess and like a, a sharpness to her intellect that kind of intimidated me a little mm -hmm. bit and made me question what I was up to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And maybe like, I think you were kind of exploring it for yourself in maybe a similar way, Absolutely. like just to For try sure. to measure, measure yourself against her. Absolutely. Right? I mean, she's hyper successful. <laughs> she's very productive, very prolific in a way that frankly, like I just haven't been because my commitments have been, have been more toward parenthood. I mean, my, my older daughter just turned 18. My younger one just turned 16. So I'm, I think I'm just sort of seeing on the other, the other side of the intense years of parenting, but it's always been my my number one thing since I've had children. But I've lost something because of that. And I have wondered actually also if they have as well a little bit. I think that, you know, I am a I am a professor and a writer and and so they they have seen they they think of me as a professional woman, but I think that by the time I was their age, I mean, especially the I think the 18-year-olds launched now, but just they're less independent. They do less for themselves than I did. It's easy to sort of lean on me because I've been there. And so, yeah, it's just, I feel like we're doomed to fail <laughs> in this negotiation between caretaking and, and so, you know, 
realizing ourselves. I think about this. So generationally, you and I are pretty close. Like I guess I'm Gen X or late Gen X or something. But I think to my childhood, and basically I was just like out and about from a young age on my bike, riding all over town. I would come home for dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that sort of mm-hmm. thing is unthinkable. I get it that I, you know, I'm raising my children in Los Angeles as you are, but it's just different. And I sometimes can find myself like bristling and being like these kids today, you know, that old person thing where you're like, these kids today are just not, they're not as tough, but maybe it's just different. Like, and I also will worry, like, am I doing it wrong as a parent? You know, what should I be doing to help my kids out the most? And it's such an impossible question. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think any of us do, but it's great that you're asking the question. Yeah. (laughs) What are we supposed to do? You know, what are we supposed to do? I don't know. Yeah. Most of the time. I mean, I think that you're expressing what to to revert to to gender stereotypes again, but I think a lot of women who are professionals and mothers are constantly feeling this, this failure, you know, and, 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 and they're, and like, I have no idea. I, I haven't cracked the code. <laughs> well, let me know okay. if you do. Maybe somebody out there has. But I just, and then even though I will have these questions, even though I can find myself like hand wringing a little bit uh, when I think about it too much, if somebody presents themselves in my social media feed or, you know, whatever it is as being an expert, I bristle against that too. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I, I'm like suspicious of advice and yet hungry for it. You know what I'm saying? Like, especially when all that, you know, I, I've never been a guy who like read books about how to be a dad. Maybe I should have, you know, like the instruction manuals. I was always like, no, like human beings have been doing this for millennia. You know, like I, I'm, I'm biologically wired for this. I'm going to sort it out. Maybe that was a mistake. But Well, I think that your resistance to, to like, expertise or certitude of any kind with respect to parenthood and your willingness to cop to your confusion about how to do it is 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 the only admirable course in my opinion because it's it's real it's honest it's allowing for the mess of life and and also the mess of like the individual circumstance you know yeah and i think i'm i am a person who lives eternally in like what I call the gray zone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when it comes to maybe it was Tessa's certitude, you know, and this feeling that she's really got her brain wrapped around things. Mm-hmm. I don't have that. I never have my head, I feel like, wrapped around things. And maybe in my least admirable moments, I do have that feeling. And I always come to regret it. Like if I give a strong take, like as an example, on social media, I'm almost always deleting that within 24 hours because I will second guess myself. I will go, what am I, you know, I'll almost immediately disagree with myself. And I I run up against this, whether it's a question around, let's say a me too cancellation. Mm -hmm. It could be something like that. Uh, Or like Dave Chappelle or, you know, anything that comes across my screen and I'm suddenly forced to be like a moral arbiter, (laughs) you know, and to figure out what I think and like, how do I come down? What's my verdict? I struggle. I struggle so much to feel a sense of authentic conviction one way or another because I can argue it both ways to myself. And I'm never, I'm, I'm rarely left with a clean answer. 
That is why I love the form of, of fiction as a writer. Because it's a form that I feel allows me, allows other writers to go for it, try on perspectives, try on ideas that can come into collision with one another. It's sort of like creating like a space of provocation and contestation that's 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 safe to an extent because it's make-believe and they're different characters right. and it's not me it's not Charmaine committing to something um, because I, I like you I'm much more interested in looking at sort of the, the complexity of something rather than like making a, a proclamation about my opinion about it which is why I don't really do social media I think I would die of anxiety if I tried to do that. And it would just feel fake to me. Yeah, I know. I'm like now at the stage where I left it for a long time, but then I feel an obligation to use it for this show, which feels okay to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But as long, I think I'm just limiting myself to like posts about the show, sharing news about books. Like that's that it. But I'm not, like as soon as I start, like I... Tried to, I tried once to do one of these videos. It was like when my book came out. I was like, I guess people are like talking to their phones. And like, I almost died. I deleted it almost <laughs> I would too. I, I cannot. Do, I was like, I feel like a complete fraud or just like it felt so gross to me. And it's just not for me to each their own. But I could not do it. And I, the physical feeling of discomfort was extreme. <laughs> and yet I can do, I can do this. I could talk to you all day about your book and about, you know, these ideas and stuff, but I just couldn't do the, the, the self-performance or something, mm -hmm. you know, to my phone. <laughs> um, so let's talk about um, female relationships and female rivalry. You mentioned this earlier, and I know we've been kind of talking around it, but I think this is an interesting part of the human experience and something that I've been witness to in my life. But I'm always sort of peripheral as a guy. I'm like, never really in it, yeah. you know, the way that women can be in it. And Tessa and Wah have a mutual rivalry. Mm -hmm. It's not just like Tessa feels Wah as a threat. Wah also feels something similar about uh, Tessa. So you just talk a little bit about your feelings on that and how you drew on maybe real life to draw the rivalry that we see on the page. Mm -hmm. I think I mentioned this before, I th rivalry between women is one of those subjects that I think culturally we're more comfortable referring to it as, oh yeah, that mean girl phenomenon or, you know, cat fight as if it's sort of just like out there, bad people. The reality is I think most women would agree from a very early age. I mean, just look at little girls and you have a daughter, how easy it is for girls to feel hurt by one another and how easy it is for power dynamics to sort of happen even again at, on the, at the playground third fourth fifth grade it starts um girls are almost groomed to or wired i don't know which maybe both to be really sensitive to one another does she think i'm wearing the right thing am i too attractive does she feel threatened by me? Does she think I'm too, too unpopular? Am I trying too hard? Am I, there's all these little dynamics that 
every woman I've talked to about this is like, yeah. And we can be like, have our best relationships in our lives be with other women, close friendships, completely supportive of one another. And yet this thing is some, a thing that is ever present as you're sort of negotiating new relationships with women or a school environment or, and so, you know, as I think that I was really probably also partly thinking about me too and thinking about some of the statements people made such as, well, if women were control of, in control of, you know, this corporation, this would never happen. Or if women were in control of whatever it may be, you know, they would never do this to other women. And I, and I was like, again, that's one of those black and white statements that is just, I don't buy it. It's just not my experience. I just think that if we really want to help women um, continue to advance in every way, we need to be a little more honest, in my opinion, about some of the ways that women have historically, for whatever reason, and some sort of almost had either, yeah, competed with one another, hurt one another, or even absorbed some, what I would say is misogynist ideas about, in this culture, like what's valuable as a woman, you know? And this is also what I was trying to get at, that, you know, Tessa's sort of very disparaging of prettiness or femininity or softness or, or devotedness to mater, you know, a, a child or a, a marriage or, or, or even she's disparaging of compassion, empathy, forgiveness. And the guys, meanwhile, we have Milton, who I think we have not talked about yet, who is Tessa's husband and Charlie, who is Wa's husband and who is having a kind of emotional affair I guess you could say with Tessa and also to some degree with Milton, like they, he's in a relationship with both yes. of them, you know, like he is their friend and, and to a degree that Wa is not. Yeah. And I have to say one thing that your book made me think about too. I was like, wow, they really do like host each other and have like sleepovers a lot. Like they stay in each other's houses. I'm like, I haven't done enough of that. I, no one invites me over. Me neither. <laughs> you know, but they travel. Yeah. And it's like, come on over, come to the farm, stay with us, eat dinner. We're going to, it's like this lovely, like, I think I, I'm sort of uh, wishing that we're. But can I ask you a case. question? Total, just, just, yeah. just curious. You just referred to it as an emotional affair with Tessa and Milton. So did you feel that way just because it was only Charlie who was involved and not Wah? Would you feel that way if someone only invited you and not your spouse? Would I feel that I was in an emotional affair? Yes, with a couple, with another couple. <laughs> I think like it, it depends. It, it's all contextual. Like it depends what the content of our exchanges were, the intensity of the friendship, what was happening between me and the the woman, me and the man, and the you know, and their marriage. You know, I would have to kind of measure. I, I would have to measure it, but it would strike me maybe as a little bit odd if consistently, uh, you know, a one-off is one mm -hmm. thing, but if I was consistently being invited to hang out with them absent my spouse, mm -hmm. you would have to take into account like, wow, they seem to be into me, <laughs> right? <laughs> to, a, to a degree that they're not into into my spouse, you know, but right. it's an interesting, it's interesting to read their interactions and to kind of watch this unfold. 
and to see the way that it evolves in the presence of and in the absence of Wa, who even when she's not there physically is always there, you know, in mm-hmm. spirit and intellectually, right? I mean, it's, she's, mm-hmm. she's always a serious part of the equation for Tessa as she narrates. Yeah, I think part of that is because Tessa can't pin down Charlie's own allegiance to Wa. You know, I think that that is a sort of slippery subject that Tessa can't, she can't quite get her bearings. And so Wa is an unknown quantity that is, that holds a certain, she holds a certain power, even even in her absence. And also there is the issue, I mean, we touched on Tessa's approach to motherhood and this kind of distant relationship that she has with her daughter, Nora, and this kind of, it's like, I mean, the emotion is there. Like you say, it's buried. Like deep down, she really feels a lot of love for her daughter, but she's not as emotional or as like puppy dog-ish about it as maybe I am or you are. And then you have uh, Wa, who has an adopted daughter. I believe the pronunciation is Tet. Is that the name? Correct, yes. And she's like an orphan, a Burmese orphan, I think, who was adopted from like a convent in Kuala Lumpur. Do I have the details right? I remember remembering correctly. Correct. Yes. Okay. So mm-hmm. she adopted a girl who uh, comes from very difficult circumstances and is, I think, representative of a more nurturing approach to motherhood and a more sacrificial approach, if that's a way of putting it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's exactly the way to put it. Not everybody's going to be uh, approaching parenthood the same way, but I feel like maybe Tessa has a hard time accepting that. Well, I think that for Tessa, what is implied, I hope, is that the more certain she is, that she, the more she tells herself that she's been justified in the choices she's made, in her not, as she puts it, hanging herself by the rope of self-sacrifice when it comes to parenthood, <laughs> the more entrenched she is in that position, the more it belies as or suggests a certain insecurity with respect to that position. And I think what is suggested, I hope, is that her upset over was doing the opposite, um, sacrificing her career for the sake or her writing time for the sake of her child, etc. That that upset, again, really just throws the mirror back at herself. That it, that it shows the extent to which she has a conflictedness that she's never wanted to really look at about all of this and a guilt, I think. I, I didn't mean to suggest that, oh, Tessa's wrong in, in, in the choices she's made and, and see, she's guilty, but, but rather that actually if she's wrong, it's only in her certitude and in her judgment. That's like a gradation difference to me between... Tessa and the narrator and the stranger Mersol, obviously different characters. One is, you know, they're they're very different. But I did feel, just in the delivery, a similar effect. Hmm. And I, I sat there reading the book and like endlessly trying to figure out what it was about the delivery, like word choices, character construction, coolness of intellect. There's something about the certitude of Tessa and the certitude of Merceau, mm. with the exception, and this is what I'm pointing to, that maybe Tessa 
is a little bit uh, or is more self-aware of her weakness and there is more room in her for remorse and being wrong or emotional upset. Marceau mm-hmm. feels like Teflon, you know, yeah. <laughs> like there's just like nothing Agreed. there, yes. you know, but I think that there are people that you come across in life, not in an extreme case like Marceau, but people that I've come across in life who do have just a, a tougher, colder's a word for it, but it's not like, a, I'm not trying to place a value judgment on it. I just mean like more cat-like. <laughs> I have such like a lack of language to describe this. You mean uh, that there's not sort of the internal conflict going on all the time? And, and so there's, yeah. it's, or at least no access to that internal conflict? They just seem like what I will tell myself this is a conversation for eventually my eventual therapist is I will tell myself like, A, they're better at life than I am. Or B, the world is made for people like this. Like, because they can make decisions more easily or they feel this sense of self-assuredness and they can process things more quickly. You know what I'm saying? Like, whereas I'm sitting there going, oh, I'm constantly in this state of back and forth and living in the gray zone or in a state of emotional upset or empathy or anxiety, whatever it is, you know, because I'm, I don't know, I'm responsive to other people's situations or how I perceive them. Like my antenna's up for that stuff. Mm-hmm. You get, see what 100%. I'm getting at? And I think antenna is exactly the way to put it that, um, and that's one of the things I love about fiction too, is that it's all about that, like, acute perceptivity, you know, whether it's first person or close third, when we're rendering a scene, rendering a moment, we're rendering it through the mechanism of a person with antennae and who are picking, who is picking up on signals that are not necessarily verbal, not necessarily even like facial expressions, but like in the ether and, and obviously drawing on their past and experience and their, their projections of, of, of anxiety about the future and all sorts of other things. There's a density of perception and feeling that is spectacularly human. And I just want to say, like, I would imagine that even though it's hard to live in, in, in the way that you were just describing, it's also like living instead of just like being a robot. Yeah. And I think I worry that maybe the world is designed for robots <laughs> or that like, like I'm, I'm haunted by this thought that like, maybe it would be easier if I just could, you know, be more executive brained or, you know, just be and able to calculate maybe more quickly. I feel like there are people who can assess situations faster than I can and can make shrewd decisions or have a knack for that. Um, and I feel like Tessa might be one of them. <laughs> yeah. But, but inside deep down, I think she is probably one of them, but I think that as you can see, it doesn't necessarily lead to happiness or peace of mind. Mm. So speaking of happiness and peace mm-hmm. of mind, you know, we've touched on Charlie, but I feel like Charlie is very much a central character, kind of the pivotal character in some ways in this book, because he is the, it's like this, this philosophical, uh, 
what's the word like jousting or philosophical back mm-hmm. and forth, you know, and he is her sparring right. partner. That's right. what I was looking for. And he's also maybe the person in the other marriage who is most like the mirror image maybe of Tessa. He's not entirely happy. I, I think he's feels a little bit trapped both by the marriage and by fatherhood and has a tendency like Tessa, I think, to intellectualize that and to philosophize it. And they're trying to sort things out for themselves through each other. (laughs) And then you have Milton, who seems like a nice guy, does well for himself, but isn't maybe as engaged at that level. I mean, I think that's what Charlie is satisfying in Tessa is this need she has or this desire she has to want to dive into this stuff. And now she's got this guy who's handsome and uh, really nice and successful who can go toe to toe with her. But Milton is interesting because he's sort of into Charlie too, but maybe with a lesser degree of intensity. And I don't know, I guess like the, the Charlie character is representative of I mean, if we've gotten into Tessa as this sort of person who's got these fixed ideas about morality, where does that put Charlie on the spectrum? Do you know what I'm saying? And how does his his identity, his gender, how does that maybe factor into the equation? Hmm. Well, that's a lot. I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. I mean, I think that to back up for a second and think about Milton and Tessa, in some ways, they are the opposite of the gender stereotypes where, you know, she is this person who's more has always been more suffocated by the domestic sphere, um, more assertive, committed to her own sort of self-interest, um, and as we've talked about, more apt to, to, to even walk away from the demands of parent- parenthood. Whereas Milton is sort of stereotypically speaking, the perfect wife, um, meaning he serves her, he's doing the cooking, the dishes, but he also isn't assertive with her. He's more demure. I think that he's very taken up by her intellect and very respectful of her position. And it's not that he's not intelligent too, it's just that's how their marriage works. And yet, in spite of her own ideas about feminism and her own ideas about what it is to be a strong woman, in some ways, Tessa can't help but want a kind of stereotypically strong man. So she thinks she wants, she she wants to fight against gender, these stereotypical gender ideas, she thinks. And yet she's drawn to his stereotypical masculinity. So, you know, Charlie is sort of posited in the book as a character, sort of a Don Juanian type of character, exactly the kind of dude that Tessa would have theoretically a major problem with, you know, exactly the kind of guy who, intellectually speaking, morally speaking, would really upset her. And yet, again, and yet she is can't help herself but 
overlook that in a way, be seduced by it. Maybe because of a combination of factors, she's drawn to him physically, but also intellectually. And there's this like erotic charge between them, as you're saying. Yeah. And I think like part of the the drive of the narrative, like what keeps you turning pages is wondering what's going to happen there. You know, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's also like learning the fate of what happens uh, between them all, to wa, all that kind of stuff. Another thing that I took note of is the fact that the book is addressed to you, to Y-O-U. Like Tessa is writing this book to someone and you don't know who that is until the end. And I love that. I thought I was like, wow, that's a great device, you know, where that's almost like a mystery. It's like, there's like a mysterious aspect to it. And it helps to bring everything into focus when you get to the, the reveal. Is that something that you were stealing from, from another book that you might've liked, or you know what I'm saying? Like what, I'm curious to know where in the process, the decision to do that arrived for you. Um, well, as far as the, I knew that the book needed to be pretty short and propulsive because I felt like readers would only be able to tolerate being in Tessa's voice for so long. And she was so kind of heady and the themes that I wanted to bring in were so heady that I wanted the story itself again, to have a certain, almost like slightly thriller, like propulsion to it. Another layer of intrigue, as you were mentioning, was like, who is this you that she's telling the story to? Actually, fairly early on, I think maybe even before I started writing, I knew who I wanted her to be telling the story to. And I knew I wanted it to be someone that we were really never going to meet in the story until the end. And that it should be someone who was sort of the kind of figure who Tessa herself in her up to here in this point in her life would never encounter take seriously want to interact with or 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 reveal herself to it's an interesting choice and it's so hard to talk around it because i don't want to spoil other people (laughs) i I know (laughs) Uh, but it's like i guess what i would say is that it it brings the spiritual into question mm-hmm. in a way that uh, surprised me pleasantly. And it adds a dimension to the book and maybe to the questions at the heart of it, you know, which are so intellectual, I think, in the voice and through the eyes of Tessa. And to have her maybe confronting things at that level a little bit it added yeah. something and I didn't, I didn't see it coming like, you know, which I think is probably the point. I mean, I think ultimately the book is as mentioned, is so much about, well, let me back up for a second and say that I think the word empathy has become such a bad word in our, and certainly in literary circles, but I feel like even more broadly, I mentioned having gone to six different therapists and one of them, the same one who told me, you're not going to like this, but you're submissive. She said, don't say the word empathy to me because I said the word empathy. She's like, don't say that word. I hate that word. I'm like, this is a therapist. (laughs) And, you know, I think that related to this, and I'll get back to to what we're talking about, about the spiritual, but related to this, 
there has been, I don't know, in the last 10 years or, or so in, in, in the literary circles and fiction, a kind of distrust of empathy and a, a, a related distrust of the enterprise of making up characters and presuming that we could possibly like know what they're thinking or because it's a not reality based and not be not based on our own experience. It's sort of, there's a whiff of appropriation there, right? And that uh, doing violence to others and, and that is not responsible somehow. And I, and I really do feel like this is related to, again, this broader cultural distrust of the possibility of actual empathy, as if it's a bad word. So it's no accident that I think that, that, that we're distrusting empathy at the very moment where we're, we're more wedded to justice than to forgiveness. We're more wedded to kind of cleansing things than we are to kind of, let's say, um, I don't know, resilience even. And so in what you're talking about, the figure of the you and, and, and and the spiritual dimension of the book, I knew I had to bring that in because the book was about this battle between correctness, justice, and, and mercy. And, you know, I didn't mean for, to say that one should always be merciful and that, that there's not times when some, you know, that's not what I'm saying, but just, I think it has to be someone like Tessa needed to have that thrown in her face because ultimately she needs to be forgiven too. Yeah. No, I thought, I thought it was like right on. It was one of those things where once I realized that I was like, oh, uh, I was very happy <laughs> uh, and it made sense, you know, it made sense, but I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. And I guess like, you know, we talked about your personal experiences that sort of fed into the writing of this book and the backdrop against which all this, you know, personal tumult, but also just like the era that we've lived through the pandemic, the politics, the craziness, like it's been a weird few years for everybody one way or another. Yeah, I'm wondering like spiritually, <laughs> how you might make sense of the world of the world. I ask this of authors. I used to ask it all the time, but I think it's such a fundamental question that doesn't get asked often enough. Hmm. Um, I think maybe in writerly or scholarly circles, it can sometimes be a tendency to want to sort of brush that stuff off or to kind of look at things solely through the intellect. But we all come to times in life, I think, one way or another, if we live long enough, where come up against things that might surpass our ability to intellectualize them. And we might need some kind of spiritual understanding. Like, do you agree? Like, how do you, how do you function in that way in the world? It's sort of the center of my whole being. It always has been since I've been very little. And I think that, and what do I mean by that? If I'm going to be honest, when I was little, like five, six, seven, and my parents didn't even know about this. Who knows why I was like this? But I would pray every night to be overflowing with love. Don't know why I had that instinct. Don't know why I, my parents did not teach me to be this way. I, 
we were not church going except for sporadically. But I think I've thought a lot in, in my life about like how that set me up for a lot of heartache and also to be sort of taken advantage of a lot. <laughs> wait, wait, but like what set you up? Not having no, a spiritual no, education no. or the, the, the praying? Praying to ha- be overflowing with love <laughs> specifically <laughs> <laughs> because when you're that committed from a very early age to choosing love first, you can seem weak. You can seem like you're someone who's willing to be taken advantage of. You can seem like you don't have your fists up. And and you don't have your fists up in the same way that so many people do. And, um, you know, so I, I think with this book, I was thinking a lot about, well, sort of like you were saying, like, has this all been a mistake going through life this way? This being my central value, love? Or in fact, must I, should I just accept this is me and maybe it's even my strength. It's sort of my thing and it's okay. And maybe it means I'm more likely to be taken advantage of, you know, or, or maybe less outwardly successful than I might be or um, more forgiving. And therefore, perhaps even look to some people like an insult to women. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I think that I was wrestling with all of that as I was writing the book. Yeah, you could definitely feel that as a reader. And it forces the reader into that kind of reckoning as well. And, you know, something that you've been touching on throughout the conversation has to do with what I keep calling the gray zone and how, you know, fiction is kind of a safe space to explore these ideas and these different characters and these different perspectives mm-hmm. and to kind of test them out against one another. And it was, it's making me think of something I just read in Vanity Fair magazine, <laughs> which uh, I always read the Proust questionnaire at the back of Vanity Fair. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Yeah, like the last page where like they have a famous person answer the Proust questionnaire and George Saunders did it. And I think one of the questions was like, who do you hate the most or who do you despise? And he's like, I am professionally uh, somebody who writes fiction, which is the art of practicing not to hate anybody, something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. I was like, yeah, Yeah. like I think anybody who's doing this work and getting inside the skin of different characters and really just slowing down and taking a look at people or even just taking a look at yourself you can't help but find yourself in the gray zone where you don't hate or fully love them right. all the time or in some sort of really clear way. You know, you're able to kind of see the nuance and the ugliness and the beauty of them. Exactly. I mean, I was really aware of that, exactly what you're describing when I was writing Tessa, because I was like, okay, the last thing I want to do is to... I mean, I'm not interested in hating her as I write her. In fact, I, I'm, my job, my task is to love her, which doesn't mean liking everything she's saying, liking everything she's done, liking how she treats people, but it means that I have to like come to the work with actually with, with 
with an open heart toward her. So I, I, and I, and honestly, it was the hardest time I've ever had as a fiction writer with a character. It cha- she challenged me the most. That, that, that makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. That makes per- I'm glad to hear you say that actually, because it makes, it makes sense. She's a tough, she's a tough cookie, mm-hmm. especially for somebody who spent her childhood praying every night that she would be overflowing with love. <laughs> I you never know? saw that coming that I was going to admit that, but okay. That's, uh, do you still do that? <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, I still have a relationship to prayer and meditation, but I, that that mantra that was the mantra of my childhood and that lasted until I was a young adolescent is no longer the, the thing. I think else. because it's just in me, you know? Yeah. You did it. You got it. You did your 15 years. You got it. It's embedded in your psyche at this point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is one of those books that I will be thinking about truly for a while. It stays with you. And it's, uh, these are not easily resolved questions that it's posing. And I don't know. It strikes nerve. It struck a nerve with me. I think anybody maybe who's at this stage of life or who's raising children, you know, it obviously speaks to all of those experiences, which I'm right in the middle of. And I'm wondering, given what we've been talking about, what the writing of this book did or did not deliver to you in terms of any kind of resolution. I know you're never going to get perfectly gift wrapped answers or that you're going to come to the end of a novel and be like, well, I solved that. But did it satisfy something for you that was really bothering you? Like, do you feel like you made your way through to a deeper, better understanding and that you can now move forward maybe with less drag or sense of unresolvedness? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I think I have two answers to that question. On the one one answer is sort of more of a, of, um, I guess the satisfaction of, of, so, so I, I, I told you when I started to think about the book during those years when I was restoring the house and me too was starting up and, and I was so overwhelmed with teaching and parenting and what was going on in our family that I could only take notes and for a couple of years. And so part of the satisfaction is figuring out how all of these things were related because I didn't know, like, how are all these things actually related to each other? And so the figuring out that they all had to do with love versus justice, that wasn't immediately apparent to me that these, that these, these various things all came down to that question. So at some level, just giving shape, a small shape to this constellation of issues that I think all of us who are at this stage in our lives are, and living here in this world, this culture at this time, are thinking about, figuring out for myself how they related to each other and what I could say about that was, was I don't know if it, it helped me answer any questions about how to proceed, but it gave me a lot of relief to, to get to find a form and a shape. I also think just on a more personal level, you know, I was writing about marriage, about parenting, and I had some anxiety about if my partner, my husband, who I've been with 
for 26 years, if I was, I didn't want to do damage there. You know, I, I wanted it to be actually the opposite. And so I feel really fortunate that he's sort of like the gold standard of the artistic spouse where he, after he read the first few chapters and was like, keep going. And then became a great editor of the work and really got what I was doing. And I feel like just at a personal level, the book was sort of a vehicle for some of my, not just instinct for love, but, but anger, you know, it was a way to kind of like put my upset at a lot of these things, what I went through as a mom and a, in the wake of the fire and culturally what we're going through and what I was going through in the marriage. Um, you know, Charlie's not my husband. I'm not why at all. And I would never want people to think that I kind of think of this actually as the opposite of a work of autofiction, but still like the emotion there is, 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 is very close. And I, I think that having the permission to, to get it all out there and, you know, the emotion and give it some sort of aesthetic shape and having the support of my spouse with all that has also been an unexpected gift. Wow. Well, that's really, I think one of the, one of the functions of making art, right, is to take the stuff that we're going through and to find a form in which we can kind of say the unsaid or say the unsayable, uh, find kind of like a repository for these difficult emotions that you can't maybe act out or perform like in the pickup line at school or you know whatever, <laughs> you know, in just the day to day, there's no place for it, yeah. you know? And so I think like, I always, I don't want to cause listeners to cringe because I know sometimes when writers start talking about the therapeutic benefits of writing, people can sort of eye roll, you know, mm -hmm. but I do feel, I feel like there is some of that. If the work itself really means something to you deeply and you're working from a really deep place how could it not mm -hmm. i've never been able to get how like people could write an entire novel and not derive some therapeutic benefit of some kind just making mm -hmm. art in general is good for the soul mm -hmm. right i mean mm -hmm. whether you you understand explicit you know explicitly why and it's really defined for you or whether you just sort of feel better afterwards for reasons you can't fully explain yeah and i think there's something therapeutic in taking something that feels like personal and, and it only pertains to you and then just sort of kind of going way past the personal into some, into the human and the cultural and for me it was a way to to actually leave behind our little story and comment on something bigger and make something make something out of it that would actually hopefully be speak to more people than just us all right. Well, I'm, I've got to believe, I know you've had probably friends read it and I'm sure you're starting to get reader responses, but it's early in the game with this book yeah. because it's just about to publish. A, have you heard from people, especially people you don't know? And then if not, I'm just going to be, I would love to hear at some point what the response is like out on book tour and what people, because I just have a feeling you're going to hear interesting things. I think it's going to activate people and it's going to cause them to like ramble at you as I have been doing <laughs> trying to like sort it out you know it's like it's get it has an odd effect on the reader that distinguishes it and that's a, a compliment to you and to the 
like the rigor of the deep thinking that you're doing in this book and the way that you found a way to explore these philosophical conundrums and human difficulties through this particular set of characters in a very, like you said, confined space. This is not a long book and yet there's so much in it. And I love books like that. A, because I have to read like two books a week. So I'm always like, yay, <laughs> you know, this one I can, I can get through, you know, but uh, without having to like read into the night, but it, that doesn't mean that, uh, that it's, you know, in any way like breezy, there's a mm-hmm. lot, of, a lot happening. Did you write like lots of pages that got cut? I'm wondering, I always wonder how people get to these like really efficient uh, novels. Did, did you like overwrite it and then bring it back or did you just go slowly? <laughs> you know, my last, my, my two previous books are like really long, 500 page manuscript type books, dense. And I, I knew with this one, I knew I wanted it to be short because a variety of things, some I mentioned, but one I haven't mentioned is just that like, like you, I, I really, I, I just love shorter books. It's what I could do during the pandemic. I think everyone's attention span was less in the beginning at least. And so I had this idea in my head fairly early on that the perfect length for a novel was like 50,000 words. And I was like, okay, how can I structure the whole book to be 50,000 words? It's not like I went and I wrote an outline. I didn't. But I think that when you tell your, it's sort of like an intention. Like I went into writing the book with the intention of writing something between 45,000 and 50,000 words. And so I, it, it's not that things weren't cut. I did cut some material after I'd sold the book, when when I got feedback from my editor, but it was only like three thousand words that I cut. Um, oh wow! So I mean, it was just a more laborious kind of working in miniature from the beginning. Yeah. Well, it's a lovely book. Congratulations on getting it done. You know, enduring and and doing the work and making sense of tough questions for the rest of us. And I always ask people at the end, if they're working on anything new, it is okay if you are not, if you're just enjoying this one, but is there anything else in the pipeline? Yes. I am presently starting to work on what I hope will be actually three novels. The first novel being the one, my nemesis that I, that we've just discussed. And then two more short books that touch on contemporary life and women's issues and like women's relationships with one another. So the next book will be in some ways thematically related, but with different characters. So it's like, could be like a trilogy, thematic trilogy. Kind of, yeah. I see them as just being, speaking to one another. Interesting. Well, we'll keep uh, our eyes peeled. Congratulations again. And thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. It was really fun. Okay, there we have it. That was Charmaine Craig. Her new novel is called My Nemesis. It is available now from Grove Press. That was a good talk, right? You can find Charmaine on the internet. Her website is charmainecraig.com. I believe she's also on social media. I think she's on Instagram. I'm pretty sure you can track her down there. Again, the novel is called My Nemesis. You can read it in one sitting. Go get your copy right away. 
The Other People podcast is listener-supported. If you love this program, if you love books and book culture, please support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep it going. If you would like to get an Other People t-shirt, you can do that over at the show's website. Just go to otherppl.com, scroll down, look for the t-shirt, click on that t-shirt. You'll see. It's self-explanatory. If you would like to read my email newsletter once a week, you can sign up for that. It's free. Sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in both places. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to this podcast. Give it a little rating, write a little review. If that's an option, it helps the cause. If you would like to watch the show, you can do that at the Other People YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button or watch highlights on TikTok or Instagram or even Twitter. If you would like to email me, if you have something to say, the email address for this program is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is out there. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Coming up next on The Other People Show, a conversation with Ayobami Adebayo, who returns to the program after, I believe, six years. She's got a new novel out called A Spell of Good Things. It, too, drops this week, and I'm very pleased to share that one with you imminently. So stay tuned. I will talk to you shortly. Shortly.